it's a crazy scenario, but this number is so big that just imagining its decimal expansion would, well, you can never even get close to it. Your, your head would collapse into a black hole long before you got near it. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with Pins the Podcast and the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 155. And this episode is with Tony Padilla, who is professor of physics in the School of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Nottingham, where he's also the associate director of the new Nottingham Center of Gravity, where you won't be surprised to hear Tony works in cosmology, quantum gravity, and related areas. He's also a host of the YouTube channel Numberphile and author of the book with the phenomenal title, Fantastic Numbers and Where to Find Them, A Cosmic Quest from Zero to Infinity. And in this episode, Tony and I discuss some of these fantastic numbers. We start off, if memory serves correctly, with two related philosophical questions, that of mathematical Platonism. So whether mathematical objects like numbers or sets or anything else might have a mind and physical world independent existence in some other realm, what is usually thought of as uh, the, or called the platonic realm or the set theoretic universe, if you're talking about sets. And then we talk, I think, about indispensability, which is the question of whether mathematical objects are necessary for physics, or that's one way of, of putting the issue. Then we move on to just a few of these wild numbers that are discussed in, in Tony's book and how they relate to our world. The first issue we discuss is just how big the universe would have to be to contain doppelgangers for all of us and how far we might have to travel to find one. And then we get into two particularly large numbers, uh, very large, very, very, very large numbers, uh, Graham's number and tree three, which you might have heard of the first one. I doubt you've heard of the second one, but maybe you have. So there are, are links to fantastic numbers and where to find them and, and number file, the YouTube channel, both in the description. And please leave likes, comments, subscribes, all of those things. So, so helpful. I cannot underscore this enough. So without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Tony. In the dedication to fantastic numbers and where to find them, you write that your daughters call you Gilderoy and my detective skills tell me that based on this and the title, you and your family are Harry Potter nerds? Well, I, I think that's probably fair. Um, they're more so, I mean, I, I've, read, I've read them all, but, um, but yeah, they're more so than me. Um, and yeah, so basically the way that comes from is that any time I, I mentioned anything about the book, I was getting like, they just start, they just go Gilderoy, Gilderoy, because of course, you know, Gilderoy Lockhart famously in, in Harry Potter writes these books and sort of shows off about it all the time. So I guess that's their way of, uh, of keeping my feet on the ground. <laughs> but that, that's yeah, right. I see. Yeah, they're all upset. He also has, he also has a very big, big smile. And <laughs> you have a, a very nice smile too. Oh, big well, smile, that's nice so to say. I don't know about that. I thought that might have been it. 
Um, but okay, good. Granted that you're a physicist, though, and not that that has anything to do with Harry Potter. And physics is full of numbers, large and small, and also delicate. Uh, last night, I just spoke with Drayton Lewis about fine tuning, so that's that's on my mind. The delicate of these numbers. How was it that you came to write a, a bestiary of numbers? Yeah, well, I mean, so, so even though I am a, a physicist, in terms, like a theoretical physicist, you know, I came to it through through maths. I mean, my background is, is, is one in maths. I did my, my degree in maths. I did, I did my PhD in a maths department, even though it was kind of a theoretical physics PhD. So, so that's always been my background. And, and um, you know, I've always had this, this, this fascination with numbers. Um, you know, I I I, uh, I tell a story in the book about how when you know when my mom and dad got me this this dictionary for Christmas, and um, but you know, so one first thing I did with it was like, okay, a dictionary, okay, this is words, right? But you know, so, so I had two interests, and one of them was was football and well, soccer, as you guys call it, and the other the other one was numbers. So I was like, what am I going to do with this? What's this going to help? This going to help me with these two things? So I decided I was going to use this dictionary to look up numbers and i sort of went through it and i you know a million and then a billion and then a trillion and i sort of spotted the pattern i saw the you know there's something going on here right so, so i ended up finding a centillion which was a one with 600 zeros in, in the old british system and uh and then and then from there you know and, and that's kind of so it's just sort of there was and it kind of i didn't get any more numbers i didn't get any higher than that i love the idea of this massive number which was way bigger than anything you'd seen before um, but of course, you know, I didn't know about a Google or a Google Flex at that time, um, and and or even Graham's number, right? So, so I've always had this love love of, of numbers, and 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 I think as I as I sort of developed, um, I think I really enjoyed how how numbers sort of fit together with 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 physics. I think that's for me is always I've always thought about how how you know. How do you bring numbers to life? Like you know, so you, you can. You, there's two ways of being a mathematician in some sense, right? You can you can be a, a real pedant, you know, or, you know, a real hardcore pure mathematician, or you can be someone like me who I would say is a little bit more relaxed, perhaps, and and wants to bring numbers to life in another way and bring them to life with, you know, give them personality using using physics, you know, seeing how they fit into the physical world, and that's really sort of you know where, where I came from. And so when, as I developed you know, as, as a mathematician, I. I I started to branch more and more into theoretical physics, and that was the, that was the area that attracted me the most. And um, but I never lost that love of numbers. And, and, and then when I started making the YouTube videos, one of the things that we did was try to put those numbers into physics, into the physical world. And when you're talking about a number like Graham's number or Googleplex, these are massive numbers. It's quite hard to fit them into the physical world in some coherent way. So, so you're naturally led to sort of really really extreme physics. Um, and so that's kind of that's kind of the spirit of, of, of what I was trying to do with the book. It's, it's just a sort of fun, it's like a ride of physics and numbers and in the most extreme environments for both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, speaking of your love for soccer slash football, before we started recording, you already compared Witten and Maldacena to Ronaldo and Messi. So it's front and center. But which ones um, are a good right? <laughs> Yeah, a... A good place to begin is where you just said how numbers and physics come together. And I figured that before we get into specifics, we should deal with this a bit more generally. And as a physicist, though, this isn't the rule, of course. I'm just going to assume, though 
correct me if I'm wrong, that you believe in, in the reality of unobservables like electrons or quarks that are vital to our most successful theories, even if they might boil down to something else like strings. But how do you conceive of some of the numbers that go along with them? Are you someone who believes that they too have an objective existence of some sort, or maybe that they're just part of a, a language we use to describe and compare what we observe? And I imagine that having this mathematical background and the the physics expertise as well gives you an interesting perspective on the matter. Yeah, I mean, so, so you it's nice that you talked about electrons, actually, in that context, because as soon as you do that, you know that you're going to need, when you write down our theory of electrons, um, it involves um, an imag imaginary numbers, right? So you write down a theory, you need you need to use imaginary numbers to actually, uh, you know, write down the theory. And so, of course, any upset, but what, what is, an, is an imaginary number in any sense part of our physical world? Is, does that really make sense? Um, we certainly don't measure imaginary numbers in any sense, but but the the thing we use to describe that theory of electrons does use them. So, I mean, I think it's a very deep question, and you know, it's, it's one really for the philosophers. And and you know, th there are many different ways you can think about it. You can think about sort of, you know, whether numbers, you know, they're obviously a, a man-made construction, but are they are they really part? of the physical world or are they separate from the physical world and just a tool for describing it? Um, and one of, one of the things I, I always think is fascinating when you think about this is, is the way, and this, this goes back to, to Wigner's famous essay in the 1960s where he talked about the unreasonable effectiveness of, of mathematics. And, and you know, so we have this universe, right, with all the wonderful things that happen in it, expansion of the universe, you know, neutron stars collapsing into, into black holes, wonderful, amazing physics, the, the microscopic physics that we can talk about, whether we're talking about particle physics or string theory or whatever, all, all, but whatever, whatever we use to describe, but, but ultimately there's stuff going on, right? And we're using mathematics to describe it. And mathematics does an incredible job of doing it, right? But we've got absolutely no right to expect it to do that because ultimately maths is a, is, is, is a man-made construction, right? So... And yet it does this incredible job of describing the universe. Will it continue to do this incredible job uh, of describing the universe as we probe more and more deeply into the, you know, in, into the micro world? Um, I don't know, but it's, it, it's, it's, it's incredible that it has done. We, we've come up with this tool, this thing, which we call maths. And yet it's just done this fantastic, and it, with all its wonderful things like, like, imaginary numbers and irrational numbers and, and, and all these things that really, you know, really hard to intuit in some sense. And yet they describe the world, it enables us to describe the world so wonderfully well. And I think that is fascinating. How long we can ride that for, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, one of the sort of great mysteries, theme, it's, to be very philosophical, is, is in the nature, you know, what is quantum gravity? I would be a proponent of string theory, but, but you know, maybe part of that question is understanding the true nature of infinity and 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 what is infinity, and of course that that touches on mathematics as well, and and how to understand infinity in mathematics. So, so does is nature going to play ball there too? We, we don't know. It's still that you know that one of the great final frontiers of theoretical physics is what is the nature of of quantum gravity and all the infinities that arise there. How do we control them? So yeah. I, I, 
I mean, the, the relationship between numbers and, and physics is, is, is one that's served us really well, but I don't know how long we, we, we can continue to, to rely upon it. Who knows? Hmm. Well, just to, uh, for me to clarify what you were saying, you, you used the word tool a number of times in describing mathematics. Can I take that as meaning that you don't epitomize the view uh, of a Platonist per se, where we're not, we are inventing math. We're not really discovering it. Or maybe you think we are discovering it. We're, we're making discoveries about a universe of sets, but our description, the mathematical logic, the way we describe it is still a man-made construction. Yeah. I, I would say my view is that it's man-made. I mean, I, I'm open-minded on this and I've seen you know, those things that, that people like, Tegmark have sort of speculated on this about the mathematical universe. Um, you know, the, the idea that all things that are mathematical are kind of realized and they, they are part of this sort of greater multiverse. You know, I, I think within mathematics itself, there is there are it's not always clear that that's consistent. And, you know, we know from you know going deep into sort of Godel's ideas about incompleteness that that sometimes you know it's not clear that mathematics itself is in is, is always going to be self-consistent, you know, ar- you know, arbitrarily. So, so I think for that reason, I'm inclined to think of maths as a as a tool and a, and a man-made construction, which is really good for describing our universe. But how? But can we do that forever? I, I'm not convinced. And and you know, I, so so it's, it's a really it's a really interesting point actually because because the, I guess this is where the physicist comes in, right? This is where, so, so one of the things that that um, that you can think about is. You know, what it, how, how do we define our theories in physics? How do we how do we how do we build our theories? Well, on some level, we have two we have two things that we can use. On the one hand, we have you know mathematics, and there's the consistency of the mathematical model, and that it makes sense, and that ever, there's no internal inconsistencies that the mathematics can show. That's really important, and a really powerful tool. It's really good. But the other tool that we have is, of course, experiments and at the end of the day, experiment always wins. It will always win, and it's it's as somebody with a math background, it's sometimes hard to re- remind yourself of that. But it, but it's ultimately true. Experiment is always the winner because you you, you go with what you see. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't question the experiment sometimes, and, and that's happened in the past. And uh, where experiment doesn't seem to really make sense, and then of course, you, you know, there's there's found to be issues with the experiment themselves, but. But that's to say that ultimately experiment is ultimate arbitrator. We must always remember that. But that doesn't mean at the same time that we can't use maths as a, as a way to guide us because I think we can and, and, and we do and we have. And that's that's one of the themes of the book, actually. Yes, you, you mentioned Max Tegmark a few minutes ago, and that's actually where I wanted to start our journey into the this bestiary of numbers. But before that, I, I an episode came out yesterday with Andy Strominger on on string theory. And I just wanted to go back to something you said even earlier, which is so that understanding infinity is particularly important for string theory. And I was wondering why it comes up there rather than with just quantum theory or just general relativity. Why why does why is infinity so particularly important for string theory? Well, I wouldn't necessarily mean for string theory. I meant the problem of quantum gravity. So, so the, the the reason is is that so we have this when we try to sort of um, 
study the quantum corrections to answer. So let's take let's take uh, the electro- electromagnetism, you know, quantum electrodynamics. You know, when we consider the sort of quantum corrections to the theory of, of an electron and a photon, you know, we we we, we actually find infinities that appear. Okay, so the, then this is actually this is Oppenheimer. You know, the Oppenheimer. So it was a very topical at the moment. It was it was Oppenheimer who was working on a calculation, uh, you know, sort of suggested to him by Pauli, uh, where he was trying to calculate the spectral lines of, of hydrogen, and uh, and the quantum corrections to that to that in this new quantum theories that you know, quantum field theories that, that we were using, and what he showed was is that there is an, the the answer you get is getting infinite answers, and so the, these infinities are appearing even in quantum electrodynamics. But what, what you find is, is there's a way to handle them. And it's a process which we call renormalization, where it, essentially, and this is a bit of a loose way to say it, but essentially what you do is you you, you, you take that infinity and you, you kind of sweep it under the rug, as, as five and put it, right? You know, you, you literally cancel it off with another infinity. It's the kind of thing that turns mathematicians' blood, blood cold, right? But it kind of works. And when you do this in a consistent way, what you find is, is that ultimately, in the case of QED, uh, you just you just have to do this for the ele- mass of the electron and the charge of the electron, and then all other observables that are related to them, you know, now fall into place, and you can make concrete predictions and come up with a with a predictive theory. And there are only two quantities that you had to sort of do a sleight of hand with, and it all works beautifully. And so that allows you to sort of make experimental predictions because you do your sleight of hand twice: once for the mass, once for the once for the charge, and then all these other experimental predictions fall into place, and you can test them. Now, the problem is when you try to do this with gravity, so in other words, we're trying to do quantum gravity, there isn't just two things that you have to sort of do the sleight of hand with. Actually, there are an infinite number of things. So, so what happens is in quantum gravity, there are an infinite number of infinities. Okay, so there's an infinite number of times you have to do this sweeping under the carpet, this sleight of hand that, that worked really so well with QED. And so that's not a predictive theory. That's that's just not something you can work with. And so this is what what I meant by saying you've got to try and control the infinity. So so it, what happens with quantum gravity is is that just infinity after infinity after infinity just comes popping out of the quantum correction to the theory, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. So the one thing you can do is you can cut the theory off. You can say I'm not going to trust the theory beyond um, some very high energy scale. Typically, you take that to be the Planck scale, and just say if I don't even try to go any higher than that. And that kind of resolves the infinity, but it also restricts the regime of applicability of your theory. And in case of, you know, if you're veering near a black hole singularity, your theory is going to break down, right? So, 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 so you want to be able to do quantum gravity. You want to be able to push the theory up to arbitrary high energies, just as you were able to do QED. And well, unfortunately at this stage, that, that naively requires you to have this infinite number of infinities. String theory, on the other hand, is is kind of gets around these problems by giving extent, giving a, give, introducing a natural scale, which is the you know the string scale, which which kind of sort of smooths everything out in a really elegant way. But that's what I meant by by sort of the problem of quantum gravity is is perhaps in some sense related to the problem of infinities and understanding the nature of infinity or not. I mean, we don't know. Well, thanks. That that was really helpful, and we could, of course, talk about string theory for for days on end. Uh, but I think we'll still be talking about infinity when we turn now to Max Tegmark and doppelgangers. And I I believe I recall in reading Fantastic Numbers that he introduced this question of 
our doppelgangers in the universe and how far away they are. I don't know if you think it would be best to start with uh, Max's formulation of the problem, because I know you treat it a little bit differently, but maybe first we could start with just what a, a doppelganger is supposed to be. Well, even that question is, 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 is not a clear uh, yes. one, right? <laughs> um, right. So, so so very naive. Okay, so traditionally, a doppelganger is something that looks exactly like you, right? And um, you know, in the book, I tell the story of my 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 mom's cousin Gerard, who 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 claimed his dad had seen his doppelganger. Um, in Irish legend, that meant that you were going to die, and then he died a week later. So it's, this was many years ago. But um, so <laughs> anyway, the 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 I guess. In some sense, you can say, "Well, what is a doppelganger? Is it is it somebody who just looks like you, or is it somebody who who actually is exactly you?" What do we mean by exactly you? Do we mean that um, it's an exactly the same quantum state, or do we mean that this it's some sort of because you're a macroscopic object? Are we thinking about some sort of? Do we really care about whether the electrons in between you know are spinning up or down in your sort of you know, small intestine? Do they have to match with your doppelganger? Is that is that do we need that level of accuracy, um, or or are we happy to average over some of that discrepancy? And so, you know, in some sense, to you, you could think about an exact copy, an literally an exact copy, where it's literally in the same quantum state, but you can never really sort of prove that because. You know, you've got to try and identify what state you're in, right? And if, you, if I'm going to take you, Robinson, and trying to figure out what's your exact quantum state, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to vaporize you, right? Because I've literally got to sort of figure out what the state of every single degree of freedom that makes you off is is in. I'm going to vaporize you, destroy you anyway, so it's not ideal. But anyway, so, so very loosely, we're talking about an exact copy to some approximation, and you can sort of speculate how accurately you want that you want that to be, and you can make it really accurate in principle. Yeah, so maybe a good way to start is with this just naive formulation of the problem. And as I understand it, it is if the universe is extraordinarily large, far larger than the observable universe, which it uh, presumably is, then certain uh, configurations of matter will recur and naively my doppelganger without getting into what actually constitutes a doppelganger, just something that is me will be uh, found as we get, as we look farther and farther away from uh, earth, because these configurations will recur just because of the immense amounts of mass in the universe. And the question is how far away do we have to look before we will find my doppelganger is that would you say that that's a, a reasonable way of putting the problem I, I wouldn't talk about mass but loose with with that caveat yeah yes i i think it's that's fair enough yeah i think it's 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 really the question of so you take you look at the sort of volume of space that you occupy right and you ask the question how many different ways can i arrange a volume of space that size right you know what, what is your, your one arrangement Right, I'm another arrangement, right? You know, a cow is another arrangement. You know, empty space is another arrangement. There's lots of different possible arrangements that, are, let's say, roughly a cubic meter of space could occupy, could be in. Sorry, and so the question is, how many arrangements are there? And of course, as the universe 
gets and then you can sort of imagine yourself so so it's, it's some number some very big number there's lots of possible is it infinite though that's the real question is there an infinite possible ways in which you can arrange a cubic meter of space and so that's the key question the answer to that is it's not infinite and there's a reason why it's not infinite there's two reasons actually why it's not infinite one is quantum mechanics and the other one is gravity those two ingredients guarantee that that number is not infinite Quantum mechanics kind of discrete, discretizes things all over space, and and it, it gives you a sort of special a building block. So that gives you almost straight away a finite piece, and also gravity itself. That space time, and so when we talk about quantum gravity, we can think about breaking up space time in a finite way. So so straight away we, we we've got this this arrangement of a, of a cubic meter of space. We can go into that into more detail, and the number of ways in which you can arrange it finite it's a finite but very large number now but if the universe is big enough you can imagine sort of you know i start off with you robinson one arrangement for that cubic meter of space i then go alongside you and i sample the next arrangement and it's different okay so i've now sampled two and i keep moving across this gigantic uh, universe and i keep sampling these cubic meters of space now eventually i'm gonna move through so many possibilities that I will start to see repetitions. Now, you might say, well, okay, fine, but you're going to see the more likely repetitions first. Of course, that's obviously true. Not everything is equally likely. I mean, I would absolutely, for example, empty space is going to be far more likely than, than a Robinson, right? Clearly true. But the Robinson is clearly not vanishingly unlikely, okay? And actually, if you go to sufficiently large universes, then even the unlikely things will start to repeat. It's just like, you know, it's just, it's just inevitable. And this is one of the ways in which we, we, I try to sort of imagine a, a Googleplex and how big a Googleplex really is. That if you imagine a, a universe that's a Googleplex meters across, then actually the chance that you would have to be almost essentially vanishingly unlikely not to ha have a, a doppelganger somewhere in a Googleplex universe, which is remarkable, right? <laughs> it is. Let's, uh, if it's okay with you, let's get into the arrangements of space in more detail. And why does entropy figure into how you think about this question? And first, I might ask you to explain just how you think about entropy, since you write that most people introduce it as analogous to a measure of disorder, but that this is the imprecise. It's imprecise. Maybe it's not the right way of looking at it. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the standard story, right? And I know it's, it's not a terrible way to describe it. it it's fine for, for its purpose. Um, <clears throat> but, but what, so, so for example, just to, just to flow with that a second, you know, <clears throat> people will talk about a, a bedroom. A tidy bedroom has, has a low entropy and a, and a messy room has a higher entropy because it's more disordered. Well, actually, do you know what? That, that's true in a way, but, Let's 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 try to unpick that a little bit to try to better understand what entropy really is. So let's suppose you have a tidy room, right? And you've got a bed arranged really nicely. There's a teddy bear sat on the bed. There's an alarm clock next to the bed. Um, you know, there's a book book there maybe. Okay, now you take a quick. You run into the room and you look at it, and you've got two seconds to just absorb the information and figure out what's in the room. Okay, and where it is. Now, because the room's nice and tidy, and then and then somebody shows you a picture of another room, and you've got to say, is that the same room? 
you probably got to do a pretty good job of, of getting that right, right? Because you knew the teddy was there. You saw the teddy. You saw the alarm clock. You saw the book. And it was all organized, and you were able to sort of distinguish this room from another room that is different, right? That has perhaps the teddy in a different place or, or the alarm clock showing a different time or a different book, you know? So you can tell the difference, okay? <clears throat> but suppose you do something – suppose that room is not a tidy room. Suppose it's a messy room. Stuff strewn everywhere. <laughs> Teddy's there, but it's under a pile of clothes, you know, it's a little bit of it sticking out. Alarm clock's just, you know, got glasses in front of it. It's, the whole thing's chaotic, right? And now you do the same trick and you run into the room and you do your two-second, you know, sort of recording what you see. And then somebody shows you another room, which is similarly messy, and you've got to figure out, is it the same room? But maybe the only thing different is the teddy was moved to a slightly different place. But because it's such a mess, you can't tell. It just looks like the same room. That's really so that that's why it has a higher entropy. So what I mean, what I'm really getting at here is entropy is really the number of different ways in which you can sort of kind of average something, in which you can get the same something to look the same. Okay? So let me give you another example. So an egg, take an egg, literally an egg. So you can ask, well, this has got entropy. Now why? Why has it got entropy? So I look at the egg, right, and I and I see it's an egg. It's a certain size, it's a certain weight, a certain temperature. It looks a certain way, right? Now, there's loads of missing information that I don't see. The specific arrangement of all the atoms within the egg, um, all that detail. Now, that's detail I'm sort of washing away. It's like the detail of the messy room, of how the clothes were strewn everywhere. It's that detail. You don't worry about that detail. You kind of just... You kind of average it out. You kind of, your brain sort of just washes it away. And so when you're looking at the egg, you're not worrying about all the arrangements of all the different atoms. Now, you might have a, a, another, you know, so, so to describe that egg and describe it, the level of approximation you, you, you're willing to do, you know, there might be lots of equivalent things that are the, the, essentially, as far as you're concerned, are exactly the same egg because you don't care about the, orig the arrangements of the atoms. You're not measuring that. You know, you're, you're measuring these macroscopic quantities, and there might be lots and lots and lots of different microscopic arrangements that yield the same macroscopic egg, right? And so entropy is really counting all those different possible microscopic arrangements. That's what it is. It's it's, we call them microstates. It's counting all the different possibilities that give the same macroscopic output. So in the case of an egg, it's just like, you know, it's all those different possible ways you could have arranged the atoms. They still get the same egg as far as you're concerned. In the case of the bedroom, it's all the different possible messy arrangements of the, of the clothes and, and all that. You, you just don't, you don't sort of disentangle. And that's what it is. It's all those different microscopic, um, ingredients. So entropy in some sense is a measure of missing, missing information. It's, it's a measure of the number of ways, the hidden ways in which you can arrange something. And so that's why it's important for counting the number of ways in which I can arrange a cubic meter of space. Hmm. This, though, I'm not sure is going to connect necessarily with our question of doppelgangers. But another conception of entropy that you introduce is that unless I'm mixing books up, I don't think I am. But it's that of a, a jailer holding back energy. And how does this picture connect with the microstate macrostate idea 
Yeah. So, so, so it, it, it's, yeah. So, 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 so I think I get, I give sort of an analogy in my book about, um, about somebody breaking into a house. Um, and so, so, so this, this goes back to the original idea of, of entropy and, and the sort of idea of change in a system. And, you know, you, the transfer of heat in particular, you know, you, you're thinking about how heat transfer, transfers, um, you know, from one place to another. And what's really the agent of that change? What is entropy? It's the growth of the number, the number of states um, in the system. So you can think about entropy as, as, um, as, as, as the agent of, of, of heat transfer. And that's how it was originally formulated back in the day, in, in, you know, in the Victorian times um, by those early physicists. And, and it, of course, it was Boltzmann that came along and then understood it that this was actually the growth of the number of, of, of states in the system. But one of the things that we know is, is that if you have a system of, of, of sort of, um, of, of heat transfer, that is, as, you, as, you, as you eliminate the, the, the sort of gradient in the heat, in, 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 you know, gradient in temperature, sorry, that you shut down heat transfer. There's nothing else to do. Right, and so it, the growth of entropy is related to this desire to sort of shut down the amount of available work there is in the universe. So, so it's trying to shut down all these gradients. So, you know, you you can try to generate, uh, you know, move energy from one place to another, but what the growth of entropy does is it tries to shut that down. It tries to slow that process down. So, so, so the way you can you can sort of you can think of it as a, you know somebody breaking into a house. And um, you know this 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 burglar is trying to trying to sort of take out you know trying to go through the house and 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 sort of take out all the you know as much of the the jewels as they like, but ultimately, you know as as, as the everything just gets grows the number of room grows it just becomes harder process for him to drag this stuff out. I don't know if that's a perfect analogy, but 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 that's that's it, it, what Boltzmann realized was this change of the system was related to the to the um you know the, 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 this this shutting down uh, of, of of work of available energy was related to the growth of the microstates of the system that it's just as there's fewer places you, you sort of you, you're using up all the possibilities in some sense okay no great that, that, that connects the two no it's very helpful and before we turn to the Google Plexian <laughs> metric of our well, size of the the universe, I'd like to still better understand the the um, composition or configuration of our doppelgangers. So you already alluded to this, but how does quantum indeterminacy affect whether there can be a true doppelganger to you or me, or if we're even determinant things to begin with. I guess I'm wondering what the, what the final number is you arrive at for how many different possible configurations there are of, of a volume of my size or something like that. Yeah. So, 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 I mean, again, this, this, it kind of relates to how much information we want to wash away and not worry about. You know, do we do we do we average over you know the states of electrons in your in your small intestine? Is that something we want to wash away um, or not? Right. Um, actually, so when when I do the estimate in the book, 
I end up not washing those things away. I, I, I literally think of you as a pure quantum state. Now, it's a strange thing to do because in some sense, you know, you are in some sense a pure quantum state, but nobody's ever going to really think of you like that because I never measure all your degrees of freedom. I don't measure those electrons in your small intestine. I don't do it. I don't know them. I'm averaging over them. When I, any, any measurements I do of you is averaging over those possibilities. And so I don't really think of you as a pure quantum state. So I think of you as actually really as a mixed quantum state. It, where, where I where I wash away those possibilities and I, and I average over them, but um, but in truth I can think of you as a pure quantum state, and, and, and in some sense you are one. And so if I do that, I can ask how many pure quantum states can there possibly be in a cubic meter of space, and I can do that calculation based on my understanding of gravity and the counting of degrees of freedom, the, the degra- counting of those ingredients. Um, Maybe that's something we can go into now, but but that's how I do it. Okay, and do you recall roughly what what the number you come up with is? Oh, you know, I think it's ten to the ten to the sixty nine, something like that. Okay, it's, it's something so like, massive. I think that's probably sufficient. <laughs> it's massive, right? But what's interesting is it's way less than a Googleplex. It's like ridiculously big. Okay, so what's a Googleplex, right? So so. A, a Google is a, is is a one with a hundred zeros, and a Googleplex is a one with a Google zeros. So of course, you know, ten to the sixty nine is less than a Google, and so the I, so I, I think this might it's, it's something around I'm having ten to sixty eight, but but so ten to the sixty nine is less than a Google, and so you know, it's so a one with sixty nine zeros, and I'm talking about one with that many zeros. So it's way less than a Googleplex. It's a much smaller number, and that's the key point. That's the point that it's much more, even though it's massive. It's way smaller than a Googleplex. And when most people speak of the universe, I think they're implicitly talking about the observable universe. And I think it would behoove us to explain just what the observable universe is and how big it is. Yeah. So, so, so. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I'm not talking about observable universe when I talk about Google Plissian universe. So just to be clear on that, I'm talking about something much larger. So, so the observable universe is about 10 to the 26 uh, meters across, if I remember rightly. Uh, so it's the one with 26 zeros meters uh, big, but certainly nothing. There's no Googleplexes floating around in that number. That's that's very small compared to Googleplex. Um, and... So, 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 what is that? So, so that is is essentially is it's kind of as far as the eye could see is the way I like to sort of describe it. So, you think about so the universe has lived for a finite time. It, you know, had a beginning about thirteen point eight billion years ago. It's been growing in that time, and there's a limit to the distance that light could have travelled in that period. And so, there's there's a region beyond that ten to twenty six meters where the stuff is literally so far away from us. We're, we're not in causal contact with it in any way. So in other words, we can't, there's no way we can send, we could have ex- ever exchanged a signal, right? It's too far away. It's, um, you know, we can't see that stuff. It's to, 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 to have communicated with that stuff beyond that distance, the light would have had to travel faster than the speed of light. And that's the limit. So that's kind of the sense. So there's this boundary, there's this shroud around us, around 10 to 26 meters, beyond which, Everything beyond it is, is is too far away from us for us to 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 have um, to have any 
for, for light to have traveled to, you know, for light from it to have reached us since the universe began. Right. And my understanding is that physicists have no doubt that there is stuff beyond uh, the observable universe. But does cosmology currently give any indication of how much stuff there might be or how big the universe could be? Or is this something that we're totally in the dark about? No, it, it, it does. It does, actually. So so one of the things you can think about when you think about the you can think about the shape of the universe. Now, so typically we assume that the universe looks the same everywhere and in all directions. It's called homogeneity and isotropy is the buzzword that we use to describe that. But what that tells us, actually, if you make that assumption, it's a good assumption on, on very large scales, um, that basically it looks the same everywhere. That means the shape of the universe doesn't have there's not many possibilities for its shape. And one of the things you can imagine is that its its shape is it's like a giant sphere in some sense. It's a three dimensional surface of a sphere, but but um, it's like a giant sphere. So, so you see, you could imagine it's finite, and you could go all the way around and come back to where you started with, right? So it's huge sphere, okay? Or it's like a plane, or it's even like a saddle. These are the three possibilities. Now. The question is, is the object that it, is that shape infinite or is it finite? Well, if it's a sphere, it's certainly finite, okay? Spheres are finite. So if the universe is a giant sphere and you could sort of go across the universe and travel for billions and billions of years and come all the way back to where you started from, literally, you know, like like navigating the, the surface of the Earth, but doing it on, the, on, on a cosmic scale. So you can ask the question, do we do we measure that shape of the universe? And we do. We measure it with the with the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is this sort of radiation that's left over from the Big Bang. Um, and, and 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 you know we can look because because the the photons that, that that make up that radiation, they travel through the universe and they feel its shape as they move through it, and we can detect that in the spectrum of the radiation. So that's what we do. We we're able to put bounds. On the um, on you know on, on the shape of the universe, and what we know is is that it's it's if it, it could be a sphere, it could be a giant sphere. But if it is a giant sphere, it's a really 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 big one, so big that it looks flat to us. So we can't even tell the difference between it whether it's a you know we're just we're in a sphere or actually we're just in a plane because its sphere is so big. Well, how big? Um, can it must it be well it must be I, I think the number is in my book but I, I remember I think it's about 200 250 times bigger than um bigger than the than, than the observable universe it's got to be really big uh, so we know it's not so we know so that's kind of kind of like we know the universe is maybe you know order 100 times bigger than than uh, than the observable size how much bigger it is than that we don't know we, we don't have an upper limit it could in fact be infinite we don't know Hmm. And then before we calculate or talk about the distance, I have one. You said that you when when I gave my sort of naive formulation of the problem, you said that you didn't agree with my suggestion that mass was important. And I just wanted to clarify that because if we're looking for my doppelganger out there, it, if there's far more mass in a region, then it seems much more likely that we would find a doppelganger of me there because trivially, if there's no mass, there's no chance. So 
the density of the mass of mass in the non observable universe would be a very important number as far as I can tell if we're trying to figure out if my doppelganger is out there because if it's empty then there just wouldn't be a doppelganger at all I mean obviously you're saying that because you yourself carry mass and therefore doppelganger must carry mass uh, so you kind of have a situation where you're vanishingly small um, densities clearly that's true but but I I, I think it emphasizes the wrong point. I think the point is really how many possibilities um, there are. And then you can ask the, the sex. So you, you take your cubic meter of space and you ask how many different ways, different quantum states can describe that cubic meter of space. It's a large number. I think it's 10 to the 10. I think it's 10 to the 70. Um, and then you can say, well, there's 10 to the 70 possibilities. Um, how far, you know, so, so, so you're gonna, you then start to move across space and start sampling these possibilities. And eventually, you will see you will see repetitions, maybe not repetitions of you, but then you, but repetitions of more likely things. But then, eventually, even the unlikely things start to be repeated. So, so you can you can actually do a calculation of well, how unlikely do you have to be to not for there not to be for there to be only one of you in a, a universe as a Googleplex meters across, and the number is tiny. You'd have to be ridiculously tiny, smaller than any other number. You know, it's just it's just really really small number. It makes it implausibly. I mean, it, it could be that you're that unlikely, and you know, we're all very special, but it's hard to justify. I think. Hmm. Okay, and then it seems like a Googleplex. This is a number where, within which, given the parameters we've discussed. It's very, very, you're going to find doppelgangers. But is there a specific number, a more specific number, where you think this is probably about the distance it would be that you'd find one doppelganger? So, 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 so this is where you relate it to the number of, the number of, of, uh, of different combinations. So, 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 the way, so let, let, maybe let's now the moment to start thinking a bit more about, about the calculation. So the, the calculation uses black holes, okay? So it turns out that the black holes are the are the best storers of entropy in the universe. They're the, they're the best hiders of information, and it, it's kind of really you can think of this quite intuitively actually. So so wh when we when we talk about a black hole, there's only certain things that we that we can measure about it. You know, measure its mass, its charge, and its spin. It's famous saying that black holes have no hair. There's no bumps and bruises on a black hole. We just measure their mass, their charge, and their spin. So you can ask a question, right? Suppose you wake up one morning and there's a black hole in your garden. You're like, oh, this black hole just appeared in my garden. And you measure its mass, its charge, and its spin. Don't get too close because it's probably not a very big black hole, and small black holes are the dangerous ones. But um, but but anyway, so 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 then the next day, you 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 notice that that black hole has changed um, by the mass of an elephant. So it's grown a little bit and it's changed its mass by the mass of an elephant. But you actually say, well, what's happened to that black hole? Has it swallowed an elephant? And you don't know. Maybe it's not. It's not revealed. It's not giving up that information. It's it's it's. Uh, it, it could have swallowed an elephant, but it could have swallowed a car that's got the same mass. And you can't tell because it's not giving up that information. It's hiding that information. That's now becoming entropy in some sense. It's 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 the so black holes carry huge. They're the best hiders of information in the universe, and they, and they carry uh, and they do carry entropy. They carry a lot of entropy for their size, and so 
one of the things you can do is you can, you can, you can do an experiment. You can think about like a thought experiment. You can think about, you know, if you start off with what's take a, take a, a cubic meter of space, what's the most entropy you can cram into that cubic meter of space? Well, it's the black hole that fills the space because <laughs> mm -hmm. black holes are the best. They're better than me and you at storing entropy. They're, they're deeply gravitational objects. And so, so, so how much entropy can a black hole store? It literally is the best hide of information. And it, and in, it, 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 it's entropy is, it goes like the surface area. It goes like the area, it's surface area in, in, in units of, of, of the Planck length, which is a really tiny distance scale. So it turns out that for a cubic meter of space, you're going to get about 10, the, the entropy is going to about, be about 10 to the 70 of the corresponding black hole. Okay, so one with 70 zeros, that's its entropy. And the entropy is in turn the log of the number of, of possible microstates. So you can just exponentiate it and you get the number of microstates down. And so this then leads to the idea that, that we have this sort of kind of holographic image of the universe in some sense, that the, 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 the degrees of freedom that you can use to describe, the ingredients you use to describe a cubic meter of space, you can think of as being kind of sort of stored on the, on the edge of that space. And the number of degrees of freedom that you need, the number of ingredients you need is this is, ten, is going to be e to the 10 to the 70, which I think is about 10 to the 10 to the 68 or 69 or something. And so that's counting the number of microstates that you have, right? that can describe a cubic meter of space. And it's no more. If you wanted it to be more, there's, there's, two, there's two things you could do. You could reduce the, what's called the Planck length, the length at which space-time breaks down and becomes quantum. You could reduce that, then the number would go up. Um, or you could sort of not have quantum mechanics, right? If you didn't have quantum mechanics, then you wouldn't be breaking this up. What quantum mechanics does is it discretizes everything. It turns them into quanta. Right, <clears throat> you wouldn't have that. You'd have like continuums, and so the minute you go from discretum to continuum, then, then then suddenly you know finite quantities become infinite, and again you'd have infinite number of possibilities. But we do have quantum mechanics, and we do have gravity, we do have a finite Planck plant length, and so all these things together tell us that that cubic meter of space only has a finite number of possible quantum states that can describe it. Now, of course, I'm making the assumption here that the physics doesn't change as I move across the universe. So, in some sense, there's some sort of locality argument here right that, that there's there's a consistency in the physical laws as i as i move vast distances in the universe and you could argue about whether that's justified or not but if i if i assume it then indeed then then as i move through this the steps and move across the universe then eventually you'll start to see repetitions of those 10 to the 10 to the 68 or 69 possible states so that's kind of the number i think now I think if I said I had a universe which was 10 to the 68, 69 meters across, it would be a stretch to say that you had a doppelganger. That's a rough ballpark estimate from distance to your doppelganger, but it's probably, you know, that's, I now need to start to factor in that you're quite an unlikely uh, thing, right? You're quite an unlikely cubic meter of space. So you have to start to, so you really have to sort of absolutely swamp that number to start making grand claims about the existence of doppelgangers but but yeah it, it, that, that's kind of the key number i think i call it a doppelgangian but it's probably a stretch to say that that's the distance to the doppelganger well again that dep depends on how you define a doppelganger if you start averaging over internal degrees of freedom and you start not worrying about ranges of electrons and so on and so forth then the number will come down because you're not requiring such an exact match of course so so 
there's there's things around about here. You can you can make if you if you don't require such a precise uh, quality to be a doppelganger, then then um, then you don't have a tra- have to traverse such such large distances. Well, the the last question I will ask about this is: Do you really think that? your doppelganger is out there somewhere is that something that you'd like gun to your head you you would you would just say you'd be willing to put your money there that's a good question i don't know it's that's not a satisfactory answer is it um no okay, no it's okay. i mean i think if it is it doesn't matter because i'm never going to meet it because it's so far away it's in a realm of the universe which is just never going to have anything to do with me right so it's a it's just, it's not a thing, right? So so it's just, it may be out there. It may be talking to a, another Robinson somewhere. Maybe. I'm never going to interact with it. I'm never going to be able to do a physical experiment that involves it. It's kind of removed. Um, do I believe it's there? I think it's plausible that the universe could be so large. So when you start to think about that, then maybe... You know, I think I talk a little bit in the book about eternal inflation and trying to understand trying to understand the initial conditions of the universe, why the universe started out as it did, and the idea of this sort of field jumping about in the early universe and causing the universe to grow very pockets of the universe to grow very, very quickly. And it continues to do this eternally and forever in all different pockets of the universe. Now such a universe would be huge, truly gargantuan. So it's uh in that scenario, you can imagine that, well, maybe. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't want to say, I don't know is such an unsatisfactory answer, but the, this, the sort of the physicist in me just doesn't want to say, I, yes, it's one or the other. So I'm going to say on the phone. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Well, thank you for doing this deep dive with me on the doppelgangers. I mean, there are so many fascinating numbers in the book you go into special relativity, the the Higgs boson, infinity, zero vacuum energy. There are so many things, but I thought, I mean, I had planned to talk about all of them, but I'm, I think it was worthwhile just going into one in, in a lot more detail. But while we are on this subject, maybe we should finish out the rest of our time by sticking with uh, black holes, holography, these sorts of questions. And I've heard of Graham's number before. It's a very, very large number, but I hadn't really considered it in connection to physics. And as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, that's a great way of bringing uh, numbers like this to life. So what is Graham's number and how does its decimal expansion connect to black holes and entropy, what we were just discussing? So, so, so yeah, so Graves number it's it's um it was introduced several decades ago now by by the mathematician Ron Graham, and and he was he was and it, it, for a long time it was regarded as the the largest number to ever to have been used in a mathematical proof. Um, so he was trying to study a problem in in, in a branch of physics known as, as Ramsey theory. It was. Yeah, I'm not a math. I'm not a hardcore mathematician. I don't want to go into too much detail, but essentially, it was a problem involving a, arrangements of, of sort of hypercubes in in higher dimensions. And he wanted to get sort of a, um, he wanted to he was looking for some particular property, and he wanted to get a bound on the dimensionality you needed to guarantee that this property occurred. And I think his lower bound was, I mean, six or thirteen, but some some ordinary number. 
And it's upper bound, but you think, well, maybe it's 100, maybe the dimensionality goes up to 100 or 1,000. No, his upper bound was this ridiculously gigantic number, which we call Graham's. Well, actually, it's not quite Graham's number. There's a bit of a sort of a, a, a sort of quirk of history there, but something like this number that we call Graham's number. And, you know, it's crazy big. This is a terrible estimate in some respects, right, that he's doing this problem and he's getting it. Oh, it's between these two numbers, six and that massive thing over there. Um, and, and, and it's, it's, um, yeah, it, it's, it's far beyond, um, any of the numbers you normally think about, you know, certainly any numbers that you, you know, set billions, trillions, quadrillions, forget them. They're nothing. A Google, nothing. A Google Plex is nothing compared to various number. You know, you, when you express it, you, you don't express it in ordinary language. You use a special notation, arrow notation to describe it. It's, it's just gargantuan. And so I was asked by Brady Harron to do to do a, a YouTube video about it. And I, I, I just wasn't satisfied with the idea of, oh, I'm just going to describe the maths of it. I wanted to think about squeezing it into our, our universe. And so um, so I thought, so I started to think, well, what, what could I, what would happen if I started to think about this? And so, and I don't mean in the, in the Knuth sense of this fancy arrow notation, but in the conventional sense that we normally think about numbers as some sort of decimal representation. Um, and then I thought, well, actually, if I tried to do that, there'd only be one possibility, and that's that my head would collapse to form a black hole. It's just long before I even reached the number. So, so the idea is that you would you would imagine this number in your head, and its, it's decimal expansion is sort of appearing in, in, in your mind's eye. And if you want to try long each number carries a little bit of information and the point is is that information weighs it really does weigh i mean you know if you take a photo on your mobile phone um then the, the you know the, what happens is that that photo will be stored that information is stored on your phone and, and actually the way it's done is it, it sort of the raises some energy levels in the electron traps and so that raising of the energy level actually makes the phone weigh a tiny bit more not much more, tiny, tiny microscopic amount, but it does weigh a tiny bit more. And actually, information does weigh. And so it, with each digit that comes into your head, you know, very naively, you can think of it just as, as that's, bringing in, that's bringing a little bit of weight, a little bit of energy into your head. And as you accumulate those, you're starting to cram too much in into too small a space, and you know that, Eventually, you, there's a limit to how much mass and energy you can squeeze into any given region, region of space before it collapses to form a black hole. Actually, in reality, as you started to try to do this, you start to try to sh shove this information in. You know, of course, could your brain even conceive it? Could could do you have the neural capacity? Um, well, actually, the book I talk about. Well, maybe our brains are actually a lot better at in principle at storing information than we realize. This is really some nice, funky ideas by. A guy called Gear Diwali who speculated about how brains store, you know, store information compared to black holes. Really interesting ideas. We'll go into details now, but they're really cool. Anyway, the point is, is that maybe we could store quite a lot, but of course, as you bring that information in, the brain's going to heat up, and you'd have to stop your brain from exploding, right? So you've got to try and keep it crammed in as the temperature rises. If you can somehow figure out how to store this information, so you've got to keep it crammed in. You've got to stop it from exploding. Let's suppose even if you manage to do all that, as these somebody keeps feeding you these numbers of Graham's number, literally feeding them in, then 
then um, then even if you can survive, you know, not manage to get your head to explode, then at some point it's just going to be so much information that the only object the size of your head capable of storing that information is the best store of information of the universe, and that's a black hole. So your head has to become a black hole at that point. And then, and actually, this will happen way before you even shake, touch the sides of Graham's number, right? You just won't even get close. Truth is, if you want to carry on, you could you could get you know your friend to keep feeding you. You're an abomination now. Your head is now a black hole, and you you would have to keep you could feed your black hole head more information, throw in more numbers. Don't know how they're really being stored, but anyway, you can imagine that. And then as that information goes into the black hole and mass is going in with it, the black hole is growing and growing and growing until it exceeds the size of the universe. Could it even do that? Possibly not, because it, it, there's also there's, there's this other limits that can uh, that can cause the universe to break at that point. So so it, it it it's a crazy scenario, but this number is so big that just imagining its decimal expansion would. But you can never even get close to it. Your, your head would collapse into a black hole long before you got near it. It ends at a seven, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Great way of, of bringing the number to life. But there would be lots of doppelgangers in a Graham's number universe, I think. It is yes, uh, fair uh, to would. say. Yes, I would Did agree you happen to, happen to calculate the size a black hole would have to be to contain Graham's number on its surface in in Planck area units. So I thought about this. It's it's basically the log of Graham's number. That would be the size of it, if I remember rightly. So that would be so, so the entropy. Let me see. So, so um, I think that was that was right. So that would be the length of the number. So I think you basically need a Graham's number sized head. I think is essentially it. The numbers are so it's so large that that's the order of magnitude that you're talking about. It might be the log of that, if I remember right. But it, it's it's a huge order of magnitude, way bigger than, than it. And that would be in Planck. That would be in Planck units. That would be in units of the Planck length. So a gigantic, uh, a gigantic head. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember yeah. right. So a, a black hole bigger than the observable universe. It would have to be yes. And so this is one of the things I talk about. Actually, is that that there's it's possible that, um, that there's there's a limit even within that that framework that you that you so our universe is surrounded by this this horizon this cosmic horizon it might be a what we call a desitter horizon which is due to the fact that the universe has this positive positive energy of the vacuum this positive energy of empty space and as your as your event horizon of your black hole grows and it starts to approach this desitter horizon if they two coincide you reach what's called a narii limit and the universe breaks that point so you'd have to find a way to sort of reduce the vacuum energy of the universe as well to allow you to push that desitter horizon out much further so there's a lot of um it's a tricky business it's it's in some ways and this is one of the things i, I mentioned but graves is too big for the universe it's just too big for it and this is one of the things like you know a numbers so how we conceived this number which in any meaningful sense, when you relate it to any of the meaningful scales that we talk about in physics, is too big for the universe. What the hell is that? It's just, it's amazing, really. And this is, this is maybe where you, mathematics and, and, and physics overlap in places, but, but they also go apart. Well, Graham's number is too big for the universe. The, the last thing that I'll ask today is, 
about the largest number in your bestiary, and that is tree three. And I don't know if you think it's too tough to explain without text or diagrams, but maybe we could give it a shot. And then I guess it also comes to life with the holographic principle, which we've been discussing. So maybe that would be a good last topic to end on. Yeah, so tree three is even bigger than Graham's number. It dwarfs Graham's number. And it's, it's the, so the way I, this is something to do with what I call the game of trees. So it's, um, so, so it's the, the idea is you play this game of, of trees. And so, so we can talk about, uh, so, so basically the idea is you, you have uh, seeds, a particular color, and branches. And so suppose you have seeds of one color. So, so the idea is to build trees. Uh, relate, you know, where you know seeds are connected by branches, and and you build this sort of forest of trees. Now, everybody has a go of drawing a tree, and there's certain rules as you as you as you, you know in the game. It's details we, we won't go into, but but the, but the idea is you build these trees, these these, these trees in, that you can make up in, in this forest. And the rule is is that the game ends if you draw a tree which contains a tree that came before. So there's kind of like a living inside your tree that you've just drawn is one of the trees that you saw earlier. Then the game's over. And so the question is, can the game, how, how can this game go on forever? Now, whether it, so, so this is the question. Now, one of the things you have to ask is how long does the game, can the game go on for? Well, that depends on how many different types of seeds you've got. So if you've only got one color of seed, then the way the game works is, is you literally, you can, the game can only last one go because you draw a seed and then, because there's limits to how many seeds you can put in any individual go, but the first go you would have to draw one, say, a black seed, and the next one would have to be a black seed connected to another black seed by a branch. Now, that contains the black seed. So it contains one of the previous trees, so, so the game's over. So this means that tree one, so the, the, the length of the game with one type of seed is one. The game ends after that first go. You have two types of seed, right? So you've got like a black seed and a white seed. And you can start trying to do various things. You maybe put a black seed first, then you put a white seed. That's fine. That doesn't contain the previous one because it's a different color seed. And now you now now and then you can keep going. Or so that and then you could draw another one and then the next that's going to end after that go. But that's actually a bad combination. What you're better off doing is you could draw um you know, the, there are other combinations that you can try. And it turns out that, that this game will end after three goes so tree two is three okay so still not a very long game so this is a bit boring don't point no point playing this game with with two types of seed so you say okay well now i'm going to play this game with three types of seed right and if you play this game with three types of seed you might think well okay if i had one type of seed the game ended after one go if i had two types of seed the game ended after two after three goes What's it going to after after we've got three types of seeds? Probably going to be fifteen goes or maybe twenty. Nothing spectacular. Well, no, it goes off. It goes to this number which we call tree three, which dwarfs Graham's number. So it's a crazy sequence. It goes one, three, tree three, bang, right up there. It's an enormous number. So it's just bizarre. It's bizarre how big it is and how quickly it literally just goes off on one. It's absolutely bizarre so so that's the that's the um so, so that's that's the that's the idea um so again this comes back to one of the videos that i made and i was thinking about trying to think about how do i talk about 
this number. It's just, I can talk about what I've just said, but I want to go a bit further. So I wanted to imagine actually playing this game. And so imagine you play a game that's going to last for as long as possible. You're going to do the, the three-seeded game. So in principle, it's going to go on for three, three moves, huge number. Well, you could ask, well, I'm going to play at the maximum speed possible. So each each person is going to draw draw their um, their seeds, you know, their, their their tree diagrams. Every plank time, as every tenth in the man is 43 seconds. You cannot draw it any faster because that would literally break space time. Okay, so this is where space time would be overwhelmed by quantum effects. So you can't draw it faster than that. So it's literally, I mean. Realistically, you're not going to draw it that fast either, but let's put that as the limit. We're going to draw a diagram. We're going to draw a tree every 10 to the minus 43 seconds. And you're going to, how long is you're going to try and draw tree three of these? Well, what's going to happen? Well, you can be playing this game and, well, almost certainly climate change is going to overwhelm the earth while you're playing. This is going to take a long time, this game. It's going to last more than a year. It's going to last more than two years. It's going to last more than a century. Somehow you're going to have to try and stay alive, but let's suppose you manage that and or you're some sort of artificial intelligence that's playing this game. The sun is going to die long before you finish this game. Galaxies will collide before you finish this game. Um, literally, you know, so you're going to have to move the game, clearly. Sun's going to swallow the earth and all this sort of stuff. But let's suppose you manage all this. Right, so the game's going to go on and on and on. It's going to carry on beyond the... Um, the, all the objects in the universe are we're going to enter an era of black hole uh, domination, uh, which will, you know, occur in, you know, I think it's ten to the, I think it's ten to the forty uh, years time, where literally all the stuff in the universe is just inside black holes, and those black holes will then slowly, you know, evaporate. You're still playing this game and it's going on and on and on and on until you eventually hit the heat death of the universe after more than a Google years. So you're still playing this game and you're not even anywhere near the end. Actually, even more remarkably, there's something else. Before you finish this game, the universe will undergo what's called a Poincaré recurrence, where it literally resets itself before you can even finish this game. Now, this Poincaré recurrence is a really weird idea. It's basically the idea that if you've got any finite system, like a pack of cards, say, and you know, so there's a finite arrangement of the cards. You've got a finite system and you you or a gas of particles in a room, similarly, and you randomly jump between one arrangement and another. Okay, if you ran then eventually you will get back to where you started after a a long but finite time. So that will happen with a pack of cards. You, you have a pack of cards. You've got one arrangement, you shuffle them, you get a different arrangement, you shuffle them again, you get a different arrangement. Let's say this is ran truly random. Keep shuffling, keep shuffling, keep shuffling, keep shuffling, keep shuffling. Eventually, you'll get back to where you started. Same with the gas of particles. If the particles start to die in the corner of the room and randomly move around the room, after a very, very long time, the system will get back to where it started and it'll end up, all the particles will end up back in the corner of the room. It's, very, it's called the Poincaré recurrence. Now, our universe, being what we believe to be a finite system, which is makes some assumptions about the nature of the expansion of the universe now and what's driving it, so-called dark energy and all those stuff. But one of the things we speculate that it could be true is that it is indeed a finite system, a large system, but a finite system. And because it's finite, it has a point, it's described by a finite number of states. <clears throat> it has its point career occurrence. And so it will eventually 
reset itself, get back to where it started. And the time it takes to do that, whilst it's a huge time, it's truly gargantuan, it's um, it's nothing. You'll still be playing the game of trees. So the game of trees will still not be over. So you never get to finish it. So in some ways, it's like a, a, a physical obstacle to to, uh, to to our to actually playing this game and actually finishing it or you know, taking it as far as it could go. This is awesome. Well, tree three is big, but it's just a drop in the pond of tree grams number, which is just a a quark in a drop in the pond of Aleph Nod and then the continuum and on and on and on. This has been so fun, Tony. It was so great. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me and thanks so much for writing this book. Pleasure. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Earhart.